You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19 this morning. Thank you, Adam, and praise team, musicians, but thank you, Joyful Noise, uh, for leading us in worship this morning, and I hope you can come back out this evening uh, to not only be blessed by them, but to encourage them, and our young people need encouragement in a culture opposed, and so one of the great ways you can encourage them is to support Uh, their ministry efforts. So hope to see you out tonight for that. For context, if you would look with me again in verse 9 that we looked at last week. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that is in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And this was... Unusual. A lot of people, a lot of liberals believe that this kind of stuff happened all the time uh, in their worldview, and it didn't. They went to see him. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we've just been reminded that Jesus saves. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John, to see how he saves. And Lord, we thank you that we have this gospel. And we pray today that as we look at this passage, the triumphal entry, that John's purpose in writing it will be fulfilled in my preaching it. And Lord, that we would have ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday night, I made the distinction between good advice and good news. And I get that distinction from one of my mentors in the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the great preacher in London, Westminster Chapel, in the mid-20th century. And he made that distinction between advice and news in a series of sermons that he preached in the 1950s on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Advice is something, counsel about something that has not been secured yet, but something you can do to improve your well-being. That's advice. We all know that. But news is about something that's already occurred. It's something that's happened, that's been secured for you. All you have to do is respond to it accordingly. To put it another way, the gospel is not the advice column in the back of the newspaper. It's the headline news on the front page in the top fold of the newspaper. Now to picture this, Martin Lord Jones said, picture a king who 
has an invading army coming into his kingdom, an enemy king, and he goes and he, he defeats that king. He defeats the enemy. The enemy is defeated. Now, in light of that victory, go and respond with joy. Respond with gratitude and, and walk in the peace that he has secured for you. That's news. But if the king doesn't win the victory, he doesn't send out uh, uh, news. He, he sends out um, advisors. He sends out advisors. And, and these advisors tell the subjects of the kingdom, here's what you need to do to secure your situation, to secure your well-being. You need to dig trenches and you need to build blockades and, and you, you need to place marksmen in these particular places. And here's what Lloyd-Jones said. Every other religion in the world but Christianity sends out not heralds of good news, they send out advisors. And these advisors give rules and, and give principles and laws so that you can secure your own well-being. But in Christianity, the king doesn't send out advisors. He sends out heralds to proclaim the victory has been won. In fact, the most common word for preaching in the New Testament is caruso, literally to herald. We have been called to herald. And because the gospel is most fundamentally the ultimate good news, it stands to reason that the fulcrum of history is a person, Jesus Christ, who has secured that good news. He is the main point of history. He is the most important person in history. And though he spent 33 years on the earth in every moment of his life from conception was about fulfilling righteousness for us, securing our salvation, the last week of his life, that is, he would live again, but the last week of his life before the cross becomes the most important week in the history of the world. And that's why the four gospels hover over it. Think about this. Matthew, his gospel spends 25% of its content on one week that begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Mark spends 33% of his gospel on that last week. One third of his gospel. Luke spends 20% of his gospel hovering over that final week that begins with Jesus making his entry into Jerusalem. And get this, the gospel of John spends close to 50% of its time in this final week. In fact, there are 89 chapters in the four gospels collectively. 29 and a half of those chapters are spent on this final week that begins with Jesus' entry 
into Jerusalem. In fact, all four Gospels record this triumphal entry. Tell you what else all four Gospels record. The ironic nature of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. That brings us to the first part of this passage in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, what is the feast? It's the Passover feast. This is when the pilgrims will come to Jerusalem and offer the sacrifices uh, that would satisfy God's wrath on their sin that had been committed through that year. When they had come to the feast, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, up to this point, Jesus has not drawn attention to himself. He's received it, but he has pushed back on the attention. He knows that they're not ready uh, for the kind of king he, he is going to offer, okay? And in fact, in John chapter 7, his skeptical brothers, and after his resurrection, they were no longer skeptical. They became believers, we, we learn. But his skeptical brother said, show yourself to the world, John chapter 7, verse 4. And his response was in verse 6, my time has not yet come. But now in the fullness of time, or to use John's language, his hour has come. And now Jesus is going public. He's going public. Remarkably, as he, as he makes his entry into Jerusalem, it seems that the crowd sees him for who he is. They understand who he is. Uh, these lines come from Psalm 118 that we read here in verse 13. By the way, Psalm 118, and we, we sang it this morning, Hosanna. It's one of the six Psalms most frequently quoted or cited in the New Testament. So it's a very important Psalm. It's what is known as a messianic Psalm. It's preparing us for the coming Messiah. So this is a big deal that they are singing Psalm 118 about Jesus. A really big deal. And notice uh, they sing Psalm 118 verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Psalm 118 verse 25. The word Hosanna is the Hebrew word for save us now. So when we sing about Hosanna, that's what we are singing. Save us now, O Lord. The second thing they sing is verse 26 of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. This is the messenger. This is the savior. This is, to use the Hebrew, the Messiah, the anointed one who comes in the name of the Lord. So it appears that this crowd is prime and ready for the Messiah, for the king who would save them. But here's the problem. When they cry, O king of Israel, and Matthew's account says they cried, Son of David, 
Again, these are not conflicting accounts. Each gospel writer is giving us a a particular perspective on what happened. It's a composite picture that we need to gather. But when they cry, uh, son of David, the majority of these people, some of them had true saving faith, but the majority of them are thinking in terms of what David did politically and militarily as king. Uh, He came with a real sword to fight human enemies, and he put them to death by that sword. To give you a sense of the kind of Messiah that these Jewish people were looking for, we have literature. It's not from the scriptures. It's what's known as the apocryphal literature. And so there is, for instance, this book known as the Psalms of Solomon that were written about 100 years B.C., But it gives you an idea of what kind of king the Jews were looking for in the first century. In the Psalms of Solomon, here's what we read. Lord, raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird him with the strength, notice, to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. And so although these, this crowd rightly recognizes Jesus as this king, for most of them, it was a completely inadequate understanding of the kind of king that the Old Testament prophesied. Indeed, that makes sense of the palm branches. Notice that they were taking branches of palm trees as they went out to meet him. The palm branches had been for 200 years a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Jewish nationalism. For example, when Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and and restored the temple 150 years earlier, they brought out palm branches uh, to celebrate his victory. As William Barclay writes, to them, it must have only been a matter of time until the trumpets rang and the call to arms sounded and the Jewish nation swept to this long-delayed victory over Rome and the world. You see, they believed their biggest problem was Rome. You go to, to Israel today and you talk to an unconverted Jew and they believe their, their biggest problem are, are the enemies that surround Israel. I asked the tour guide when I was there, a, a brilliant man who I believe is on the verge of conversion. I said, how come you don't believe in Messiah, in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's come? He said, because we are still surrounded by our enemies. He believes his biggest problem is not his sin. His biggest problem is external to him. And most people believe that. Most people have, by nature, a victim mentality. They don't see their problem as their sin or their heart. They see their problem as their spouse or their parents or their coworkers or the people in their Sunday school class. Are there pastors? Well, they never see pastors as a problem. (laughs) But that is our 
our nature. And as a, as a result of our misdiagnosis, we misunderstand the kind of Savior we really need. And I've known so many uh, in ministry through the years who wanted a Savior not to save them from their sin, but to fix their problems, which they perceived as external to them. <clears throat> they see themselves as victims of external factors, and, and they hope that Jesus can fix them, or they see Jesus as a, Aladdin's genie who is there for their beck and call. But they don't want a ruler. They want to rule. They just some, want someone there, a butler, there to provide them a softer pillow when, he, when they call. In the 1980s, this group known as Tears for Fear came out with a song that really the title is theologically correct. Everyone, everybody wants to rule the world. And I don't know if Tears for Fear were thinking in terms of the Christian worldview, but it's true. We want to rule, and we want a Savior who doesn't rule over us. He just, he's there for us when we, when we need him. But then when he doesn't provide what we want, we turn from him. Because he hasn't been the Savior we thought he would be. A few years ago, I was pastoring in Louisville, and a man came to our church, and he had... He had absolutely destroyed his marriage. Excuse me on that. He had committed adultery on his wife numerous times, and he had beaten her physically. He had abused her emotionally. And many times she, he, had, he had asked for forgiveness, and she had taken him back in, and finally enough was enough, and, and now it was over. And so he was brought to wit's end, and he came to our church, and, and he wanted to be baptized. And he committed to our church, and I baptized him. Turns out I didn't really baptize him because I don't believe he was actually converted, which means I just dunked him. Uh, but he fooled us all. He had an intellectual understanding of the gospel, and he looked really broken over his sin, but, but over time, we began to realize he wasn't committed to Christ. He was committed to himself. And when he realized Jesus wasn't going to reconcile his marriage, when he realized that his wife wasn't coming home, he turned from his commitment to Christ and his church. Well, that's exactly what these people are going to do in time. Uh, they're going to realize in just a few days that Jesus is not the kind of Savior they were expecting. And instead of saying, Hosanna, in just a few days, they're going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Well, Jesus knew that he was coming not as the king they expected. He was coming as the king the Old Testament promised. And for that matter, he was coming as the king that we need. Well, look with me in verse 14. It's counter to everything we see with politicians today. In fact, counter to the way we see many pastors today, unfortunately. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it. Of course, we know from other gospels that 
He sent the disciples to bring that donkey to him, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, some imagine Jesus coming like this heroic figure, like a float, the only float in the Macy's Day Parade. He's just... He's coming bombastically into Jerusalem as the, as the conquering warrior. Well, that's certainly not the way he's coming in. Then others envision him coming like the, some stoic figure with no emotion, completely unaware of the crowd, like a, a boxer coming into the ring who's about to go to battle. Well, neither one of those views is correct. In Luke's account, he, he gives us kind of some information before he comes into Jerusalem that gives us an idea of Jesus' um, state of mind. In Luke chapter 19, it says, He drew near, that is Jerusalem, and he saw the city. And, and, and I have stood where many people believe Jesus stood as he looked over Jerusalem. It's, it's an amazing sight to stand up and he's kind of up on a hill and you can see the, the city of Jerusalem. And, and it says he, he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus pronounced judgment. On Jerusalem. So this is what he's doing just before he comes into the city. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. We learned that that will happen in 70 AD with General Titus. So Jesus doesn't come bombastically like a professional wrestler or some arrogant politician. And he doesn't come stoically, unemotionally. He comes as one who weeps over Israel's lostness, just like he wept over Lazarus' death. The exact language that's used. And that's the point of the donkey. It's the point of the donkey. The horse-mounted king comes to fight a war on political enemies. But the donkey-mounted king is coming to make peace. He's coming to make peace. And he's going to reject their view of king because it's not biblical. We need to get our views from Scripture, not from the culture, right? And so they have a cultural-driven uh, view of this king. And Jesus understands he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament says this king would be. And when they learn that, they're going to want to have him crucified. As Richard Phillips quips, Jesus had rejected their offer of a war-bound kingship on Palm Sunday. They rejected his kingdom of peace on Good Friday. Now, Jesus does not disagree with them that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one who is Hosanna in the flesh who will save God's people. But understand this. This is a Bible 
interpretation point. You can't just take one passage and it be your controlling passage. You have to let what the whole scripture says about any particular truth in order to have a robust understanding of truth. And so Psalm 118 is true, but it has to be read in light of other passages like Zechariah chapter 9. In fact, all four gospels pick up Psalm 118 and Zechariah chapter 9. Now, what does Zechariah chapter 9 tell us? It was written 500 years before the coming of Christ, by the way. Remarkable prophecy. In Zechariah 9, 9, listen to this. And it was written at a time when Judah had come back into the land after 70 years of exile. But now for the first time, since before Saul, they had no king. And it says, behold, your king is coming to you. Zechariah is preaching the gospel to them. You don't have a king right now, but, but your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of this because he is. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And notice, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. He, when this king comes, he's going to put an end to all war. And he shall pe speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, you say, well, he hasn't put an end to war. These prophecies have to be read in light of two advents, okay? Uh, the Old Testament writers saw one day coming in the future. The mystery revealed to the New Testament writers is that these fulfillments would come in two stages. There would be the first stage, the, the advent, the first advent of Jesus, and then the second stage, the second advent. In other words, these promises would be fulfilled inaugurally in the first advent, but they would be consummated in the last advent. And so here we see Zechariah essentially promises three things about this king. First, Jerusalem should rejoice because this king is coming. Now keep in mind, they had to wait. This prophecy was 500 years out, but the king is coming and, and you need to put your faith in this king who's coming. Secondly, he's bringing shalom. He's bringing real peace. And third, this king, in contrast to the earthly kings in Zechariah 9, 1 to 8, is likely a prophecy of Alexander the Great. This king is going to bring worldwide salvation. He's going to bring salvation. But key to understanding this king and his work is the language of, notice verse 9, righteous and having salvation is he. Now, if you're really in tune to that language, it presents a problem. You see, humankind's internal problem is our sin. In the Godhead, the internal problem is forgiving sin because this God cannot deny himself. So how can God bring salvation and at the same time be true to who he is as holy and righteous? How can he save sinners who are opposed to him? 
and remain holy and righteous. He is righteous and yet having salvation, bringing salvation. How can he do that? Well, it's this simple. Divine salvation by divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. Let me repeat that. Divine salvation. Salvation will be all of God, all of grace. By divine satisfaction. He has to satisfy himself on our sin. His, our sin has to be judged. Imagine going, standing before a judge for hor horrible and heinous crimes and the judge just sweeps your crimes underneath the, the mat. That's not a good judge. And so this judge has to judge our sin. He has to be satisfied. How will he do it? Through the substitute. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. That's this king who is coming. This king, as a result, comes not in pomp and circumstance on a white horse. That will come. He will come humbly on this donkey. He comes to save not with an imperial crown, but a crown of thorns. That's this king. But note, not everyone will get that. There will be varied responses to this king, then and now. Look with me in verse 16. His disciples, now who are the disciples? It's the 12. But one is in the process of betraying him. And so... I believe that there's only 11 who are truly believers. <clears throat> but the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this is a very important point for interpreting your Bible. Jesus' glorification explains all of redemptive history. I'm not just deducing that. Paul says it in his first recorded sermon in Acts 13, 32 and 33. He says, the promises made to the Father have been fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' glorification explains all of redemption history. And so it wasn't until he would be glorified through his resurrection from the grave and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father that the disciples, the lights would come on for the disciples. In fact, it would only be after he was glorified that they would come to truly understand Jesus is the key to interpreting the Old Testament. Of course, this was in keeping with what Jesus had already said earlier in, for instance, uh, John 5, 39, when he said that the scriptures bear witness about him. Or that Moses wrote about him. That must have set the Pharisees off. <clears throat> Jesus would be glorified by his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. And if he had not been, we wouldn't have a savior. And get this, if he had not been glorified, we would not have a hermeneutic. <laughs> we wouldn't have a spirit-inspired key to interpreting 
the Old Testament. And so the glorification of Christ is everything. But here's another point I need to make here. I was asked this week by a brother in Christ if I thought the disciples were saved at this point. And I say yes, at least 11 of the 12 were. But this, and I said there's a varied responses to the, to, the, to the gospel and to Jesus. This is an example by the disciples of faith-seeking understanding. And that represents every believer in here. We haven't arrived, okay, in our understanding. So the disciples are examples of faith-seeking understanding. It's one of the responses to the gospel. That will, that will be our response until glory. It would require for Jesus to be glorified for them to understand. And for us, we now look back at his glorification through the word of God, through the gospels, through the gospel itself. And our faith, okay, continues to seek understanding until till glory. But that's not the only response. That's the only saving response. Notice me in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now, it's hard to say which of these were truly saved and, and those of you who had a superficial uh, understanding. Some certainly did because the reason I say that is that if you look in verse 37, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so it's hard to say what percentage had true saving faith and what percentage of these were just enthralled with his works. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign that is he had raised Lazarus. And so... The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. That is, their plan to put him to death, it's not gaining anything. It's not graining ground. Look, the world has gone after him. What we've done has only made him more popular. That's another response to Jesus, his hostility. It's no wonder that Christianity has been for since its conception, the most persecuted religion in the world. Why is that? Because of the exclusive claims of the gospel and because when Jesus comes as Savior, he comes as King. And when he comes as King, it means he comes as ruler. And as we've already heard, everybody wants to rule the world, but there can only be one who rules the world. And so there are many who are hostile to Christianity. And we see this with the Pharisees. It's a precursor of, of church history. But then there's this third response. We've seen faith-seeking understanding. That's one response. I pray that's you. I pray that that is you this morning, faith-seeking understanding. There's hostility. And then there's a third response, superficiality. Again, these people were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were reading Psalm 118 correctly, but again, 
when they began to realize he was not the kind of king that they thought he would be and deliver them from Rome, by the end of the week, they would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. We meet them all the time. Every pastor here has stories, I promise you, of people who come and, man, they want to be baptized. They, they, they immerse themselves in the life of the church. And then in six months, the FBI can't find them. And the reason for that is they had a superficial understanding of what Jesus would do for them. They did not understand that their biggest problem is not external to them. Yes, external issues can be painful. Their biggest issue is their sin. And their biggest issue is they, they need a savior from self-rule. And they don't want to be ruled by anyone else. Superficial understanding. <clears throat> and commitment to Jesus is absolutely necessary because he's the king of the world. It's a humbling thing to drink water in front of everybody. I just want you to understand that. <laughs> this coming Saturday, May the 6th, the entire world, no telling how many people will watch this, maybe billions, will watch the coronation of King Charles. It's going to be a, a massive event. And, and during that ceremony, witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, he's going to be given a diamond-encrusted golden ball called an orb. All right? So I'm giving you a preview. Uh, we used to have to get the TV guide to know these things were coming, right? <laughs> and so the Archbishop of Canterbury will then say, receive this orb set under the cross and remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Redeemer. He's actually going to say that. Millions will see it. Be praying God uses that. Indeed, the whole world is subject to him. He's the king of the world. There's no other king, whether the world recognizes it or not. But as we complete this text, we need to remember Jesus has secured the news. He has secured everything we need for salvation, but his work's not yet complete. He's going to come again. And this time, not on a donkey. He's going to come on a white horse. I tend to think that's literal. He's going to come on a white horse. And on that white horse, he's coming for war. He's coming for war. Does that fit your notion of Jesus? I hope it does. Because it fits the notion of Jesus to the one who spent the most time with him, the Apostle John. Again, during the 6th of May ceremony, that ceremony where they, where they um, coronate King Charles, a number of swords will be carried in before King Charles as he makes his way into Westminster Abbey. 
One of those swords will be a blunt sword. That represents the first advent when Christ comes in grace and mercy. He comes for peace. You don't need a sharp sword if you come in for peace, right? He's coming so that you might have peace with God. That's your biggest problem. It's nothing else. You need to make peace with God and it comes through Jesus alone. All right? Now, peace with your fellow man will be the fruit of that. But he's coming to make peace, but you've got to receive his provision. You've got to come to him on his terms. Remember, he's a king. You're no longer your king. He's now going to be your king. So there's going to be this blunt sword, but then there's also going to be a, a very sharp sword. And that sharp sword is going to represent his second appearing, his second advent. And that sharp sword is going to be symbolic of judgment day. Judgment day is coming. And everyone who has resisted his rule, who has resisted his reign, and has stood in the way of peace will be judged. And that sword represents that. And they will be, and this is not popular today, but you know what? It's never been popular. They will be banished to hell. But then there will be peace forevermore in a new heavens and a new earth. No advice here, just news, just news. And as we come to the end of our time, as Adam and the musicians come forward, there's no advice here. The news is Jesus Christ has secured salvation for those who would trust in him. But you must respond accordingly. You have to come on his terms. You don't get to come on your terms. You know that intuitively. If you get a, a meeting with the president of the United States, you don't get to come to the president on your terms. You come on his terms. You have to come to Jesus on his terms. You have to come repentantly. He didn't come to save you in your sins. He came to save you from your sins. And so you have to repent and then you have to put your trust in him as king. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.